Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. New Books in Economics, brought to you by EAEPE, the European Association for Evolutionary Political Economy. Welcome to this new episode of New Books in Economics, part of the New Books Network. I am Andrea Bernardi from Oxford Brooks, your host, and today I am with Professor Edward Cartwright to talk about his third edition of textbooks on behavioral economics. They are published by Routledge, and uh, it is a very large, uh, very important uh, textbook on a very interesting field in economics. Uh, Let's start asking uh, Edward to introduce himself and to tell us something about his current and past affiliations. And thank you for being here, Edward. Okay, hello, thank you. Um, So I'm currently Professor of Economics at De Montfort University, which is in Leicester in the UK, uh, where I'm also Director of the Institute for Applied Economics and Social Value. Um, Before that, I I spent many years at the University of Kent um, and a year in Paris. Um, My training was at undergraduate at Durham University and graduate at uh, Warwick University. Great. Uh, How did you end writing uh, these... uh textbook okay so i i mean i have a background in behavioral economics research um but i was teaching a a first year course uh, sharing the teaching on that which we developed on strategy and games which was designed to give um, new undergraduates a, a feel for game theory and behavioral economics and experiments and when we were working on that uh, that course that module um, it was clear there's limited amounts of resources available at that time for students interested in behavioral economics. Um, and so that was really the origins of the, of the textbook. To, um, there, was, there was one textbook at the time. Um, mine was the second textbook. Now there are lots of textbooks. Um, but, you know, I think that, that's good. Um, it was aimed to be kind of third year master's level relatively advanced behavioral economics book um and it in essence the 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 textbooks lagged the the state of the field because behavioral economics was already relatively um mainstream by them but there was very little in terms of uh, resources that students could uh, could go to Uh, so that was the idea very good. So for the listeners who are not familiar with behavioral economics or with economics in general, can you tell us in, in short uh, what is behavioral economics and what schools within behavioral economics are present today? Okay, so that's a difficult question because there's no simple explanation for what behavioral economics is. Uh, it's easier to say what it isn't. Um, and if we look back at the history, from the 1940s, 50s onwards, economics became very much about rational, selfish behavior. 
Um, and th- there are various reasons for that, but that essentially became what it was. It was the study of, of rational, selfish human beings. And of course, human beings are not rational. They make mistakes and they're also not selfish. They do um, you know, nice acts for people and sometimes they also do nasty acts, which, which wouldn't be selfish. So economics, behavioral economics, in essence, was a, a slight reaction to um, this assuming people are rational and selfish. So that's one strand to it. But there are other strands, and in particular, the emergence of experimental methods, um, which started around the 50s and the 60s and built up since then. And experimental methods naturally expose us to the fact that people are not rational or selfish. And so these these two things have kind of come together and built really a new economics that, that takes on board behavioral um, behavioral issues. Um, now, in terms of the different schools within it, um, that comes partly down to how we define behavioral economics. So some define behavioral economics relatively narrowly, I would say, around the work that came out of uh, Kahneman, uh, Tversky, more recently Richard Fowler, which is sometimes really questioning the rationality, I mean, also questioning the fairness assumption, but essentially um, very much attacking some of the assumptions that conventional economics was making. Um, some people would associate behavioral economics with the, with the work of Herbert Simon, which uh, goes back to the 60s, uh, looking at bounded rationality. Um, but then some would associate it more with, with experimental economics, um, and the work that Vernon Smith and, and followers have done, um, which is mainly using experimental methods and and possibly at slightly more aggregated levels. For instance, Vernon Smith was looking at markets, which therefore is slightly taking the emphasis away from individuals and markets uh, in the real world. Um, and probably more recently, although owes its origins to the time of Herbert Simon, we have the notion that that humans are actually quite clever. So instead of emphasizing the mistakes that people make, we should emphasize how clever people are in navigating the world, um, which is, I mean, the, the, the nice uh, title of a book, but uh, it's, it's simple heuristics that make us smart. It's this idea that, okay, yeah, we're kind of, boundedly rational and, and so on, but we're actually able to make very clever decisions because of a, our decision-making is, is mapped to the environment that we live in. So we're ecologically rational. In, in a lab, we might do silly things, but in the real world, we are, uh, we're quite clever. So there's these various different ways of, of looking at the, at the issue. Very good. So uh, to locate uh, again uh, this field uh, within economics, uh, now I would like to ask you if you could locate behavioral economics in the mainstream versus heterodox economics debate. You have already somehow answered, but let's see if you can formalize this more. I think behavioral economics is now mainstream. Um, I don't think there's any doubt about that if you if you just randomly open the top journals in economics you're going to see behavioral economics everywhere 
Um, now, so it has become mainstream. Now, people would say, okay, uh, was it a fight to get there? Um, and, I mean, it clearly clearly was. So it was a slow process of um, persuading that experimental methods were valid, that it was okay to assume people were not selfish and that they made mistakes and that these things could be studied by economics. So now behavioral economics, I mean, at least as far as I'm concerned, is just a standard part of the mainstream. I think um, if you were to try and write a paper that um, assumed people are rational and selfish, that would be a harder sell now in the current environment. Um, but I guess heterodox economists still um, would associate themselves a little bit with the behavioral economics as wanting economics to maybe go further. So I think we're going to talk about macro and micro um, next, but the um, microeconomics has completely bought the behavioral economics um, idea, but macroeconomics is maybe slower uh, to take that up. And so I think that some people still feel we, we need to push further and um, have not done enough. And I think another element to that, that people can criticize behavioral economics for is that it has in essence become assimilated, if you like, within mainstream economics and didn't push the boundaries enough. Um, so what do I mean by that? So, say, standard economics might have assumed people were rational and selfish, and it writes down these utility functions, and it maximizes them, and so on and so forth. And what some behavioral economics has done, I mean, prospect theory being one name, is it essentially adds some extra terms to the utility function. I mean, some would argue there's a lot more than that, but kind of adds some extra terms to the utility function, but then you still maximize and you're still, in essence, rational within that within that framework. So some economists think that we would need to, or some outside economics as well, think that we need to push the boundaries a little bit more, and we're still arguably too reliant on writing down utility functions and solving them um, with, with mathematics. So it's really a question of, of whether you think we've gone enough or whether we need to go... Uh, more than that. Yeah, you have already mentioned the macro-micro uh, issue, and, and in fact, I wanted to ask you in which way behavioral economics has uh, contributed to redefine the, the relationship between the two levels of analysis, because in most uh, heterodox economics, uh, this, is, this is one of the issues, uh, or at least this is one of the outcomes of uh, uh, different approaches. Uh, so in has behavioral economics contributed to this debate as well or not? I think it's contributed hugely to the debate. Um, I think microeconomics has adapted very naturally to behavioral economics. Um, you know, there's been some bumps in the road, but I think given that micro is about individual decision making, it's been relatively easy to incorporate the idea that individuals are not always rational they make mistakes and so on and so forth and and so in in mainstream micro you pretty much have to take account of the behavioral element now for instance in, in development economics i mean you you need to 
take account of how people make decisions um, in 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 different environments. Now, I'm I'm not a macroeconomist, and so you know uh, I'm going to give my kind of maybe stereotype, stylized view of of how it is in macro. But macro has still largely clung to the assumption of rational and, and selfish uh, behavior. And so there was the idea that there should be micro foundations for macro. But in my opinion, that's in essence made things even worse um, because that means macro models are now kind of being built around these very stylized versions of what a rational person would do. And so macro, in a way, has, has now diverged even more from micro. And, and it's, it's, I think it's very hard now to bridge between macro and micro because they are just really talking very different languages. Um, and so I think what, you, what I at least see in macroeconomics is attempts to really change the way that macroeconomics is, is doing things um, to be more behavioral, to maybe bring in things from computational methods, um, agent-based models, all these kinds of things. I think the question is whether that's going to come from within macroeconomics or it's going to be more of a revolution that comes from outside macroeconomics. So we have um, projects like Rebuilding Macroeconomics in the UK, um, which are trying to, to push these questions um, but I think, in essence, micro has changed and macro has, has stayed on that same track. And so the, the divergence between the two is, is even more stark. And, um, you know, that, that then raises issues for policymaking. For, um, I guess who, who policymakers are supposed to go to, whether it's the macro or the micro side, because they might be getting two, two very different answers to similar questions. Thank you very much, in particular, for your counterintuitive analysis of how uh, macro and micro have been uh, diverging rather than converging. Uh, so, in general, if you look back at the past decades, uh, we had a few Nobel Prizes on uh, awarded to behavioral economists. In general, how would you assess the impact in general on economics of uh, the research in behavioral economics? I mean, the impact has clearly been huge. Um, I mean, it depends slightly on how you d define behavioral economics and how broad you would make it, but I think it's clear the impact has been huge. Um, and I think that's both in terms of the issues that we study, um, because the whole question of, of rationality really became a big, uh, and, and, and social preferences became a really big topic of interest. Instead of just assuming these things, we now um, study them, and I think there's clear overlaps with psychology there who, who would also study these things. Um, but also in terms of methods, I mean, experiments have now become a very routine way of doing economics. Um, and I think there you can, you can, in essence, see this process where initially you had people who did experiments, um, and now we're getting to a point where a lot of microeconomists just do experiments as part of their use. So instead of it being something that some people specialize in, 
it's now begun something that you know a large proportion of, of particularly microeconomists just do as a routine way of studying economic behavior. Um, and that's obviously led into to field experiments and, uh, and a whole new um, possibilities in terms of what we can do. So I think the impact on methods is arguably the, the biggest effect that there's been there. Um, and that's, you know, important for up and coming uh, students and PhD students and so on, because, you know, I think it's important to get on top of those methods so that you can then use them and, and develop them. And, um, you know, I think that's really where the future of economics is going. So I think its, it's effect has been quite revolutionary. Um, and, you know, at least from my perspective, uh, for good reason. I would like now to focus on two chapters, which are the final two chapters, but uh, I forgot to um, read the table of contents of the book. So let's see, there are four parts. The first part is introduction. The second part is uh, economic behavior. Then we have the third part on origins of behavior. And then there is a final fourth part on welfare and policy. So if I can ask you about the 10th chapter, um, which is happiness and utility, uh, can you please tell us why happiness economics is here? What is the relationship between happiness economics and behavioral economics? And probably many of the listeners are not familiar with happiness economics at all. Okay. So I guess so, some people would not include happiness economics under the rubric of behavioral economics. Um, but, you know, that, that, that's a debate that uh, is not so important here. I personally felt that behavioral economics, um, you need to think about happiness and, and well-being. And so I wanted the, the, that chapter in there. So what happiness economics is about is essentially studying what it is that makes people happy. Um, so why is, why is that relevant? Well, economists, at least historically, have had a fascination with money and the idea that, that, that more money is better. And so as long as we maximize money um, or in terms of GDP, as long as we maximize the output of the economy, we maximize productivity and so on, then we're doing the right things. And essentially what happiness economics does is takes a step back and says, well, actually what really matters is people being happy and fulfilled in their life. And do we know that making more things and having more money is what actually gives happiness? And so this new uh, field of study essentially grew up to try and study what makes people happy and perhaps more importantly, from a policy perspective, whether people know what makes them happy, right? Because I think, you know, a lot of people are driven to get more money, but then does the money actually make them make them happier? And, no, I mean, there's, there's some controversial elements to this research in terms of what it's found and what it hasn't. There's, there's often some um, provocative headlines about, you know, single people being, you know, divorced people being happier than married people and so on and so forth. But... The, um, I think underlying it, we found some really interesting things. Um, for instance, the one thing that particularly seems to stand out as bad for well-being is unemployment, right? So being unemployed has a serious detrimental effect on people's well-being. 
And so then that means, you know, from a policy perspective and, and a welfare perspective, we need to understand that, that unemployment is a bad thing. And, I mean, we always knew that, but now we understand this may be even more of a bad thing than we, than we thought before. And that, you know, can then help guide policy in, in trying, to, trying to fix it. And so from a, from a practical perspective, you get things like that. But I, I think from the other interesting element of this is whether people know what's happy, what, what makes them happy, and then how that can then feed into policy. Um, which, you know, is, is then in essence the, the final chapter on policy. But that's really where things like nudge to some extent come in because, um, you know, take healthy eating, for instance, you then get into relatively provocative questions whether, whether people actually know what's best for them in their long-term future when they are um, deciding what to eat, whether to smoke, whether to exercise, um, and questions like this. So I think, you know, happiness economics raises some provocative questions. Um, you know, we don't necessarily have all the answers yet, but I think it's, it's really important. And I, and I, I definitely think that on the, the macro policy level, well-being needs to rise up the level of importance. So before the financial crisis, there were, you know, real, uh, efforts to try and put well-being as, as a measure of, of um, economic output at a national level. Because of the financial crisis and so on, those things kind of went a little by the by. Uh, but I think the obsession that we have with GDP is, is, you know, needs, needs to change. And well-being, I think, is increasingly going to become something that um, – that is measured and taken seriously as um, a measure of what's happening in a country. So I, you know, I think it's important that things like that were in the textbook um, uh, for for students to to understand and appreciate. Let's move now to the final chapter, the one devoted to um, policy. Um, our listeners might not be aware, but uh, the field of behavioral economics had. Uh, in some countries in particular, a substantial impact on policy making, and there are governments which already have a so-called nudge unit, which is using also the behavioral economics research to define and design some policies. Um, so can you tell us uh, what was the impact of behavioral economics on policy and uh, what do you think it might be in the future? Okay, so I mean, The, the potted history of this is uh, largely comes from the UK, where <clears throat> the um, essentially the UK government started to take seriously the ideas that were coming out of behavioural economics, um, including the work of, of Daniel Kahneman and, and Mr. Versky and so on. And out of that was ultimately born the Behavioural Insights team. Uh, and various ways to look at policy. So there's a mind space um, way of looking at policy, and then a slightly simplified version called EAST, um, which, you know, if, if you Google, you will find them. And these were essentially frameworks to think about how to inform policy. 
So traditionally, economic policy has focused on financial incentives. So to give the classic example um, that, that was looked at was how to get people to pay their taxes. So you have someone that hasn't paid their tax, um, and how can you then encourage them to pay it? Well, you know, a classic method might be to uh, say that you will fine them if they don't fill it in. Right? And I mean, there's obvious reasons why that might work, but for some people it doesn't. And what the Behavioral Insights team tried was to change the wording of the letter. Right? So when you send the letter out to these uh, people that are not paying their tax, you might just add an extra sentence here or there and see if that changes the rates at which people pay uh, their tax. And indeed, it did make a difference. In particular, if you give what I would you reinforce positive social norms. So for instance, you, you tell them, well, 95% of people in your area pay their tax on time, right? Then that had a, a significant effect on uh, significant increase in the proportion of people paying their tax. So it's um, now in classical economics, that's not supposed to make any difference. You've added, you know, one extra sentence to a letter that should make no difference. Behavioral economics gives you some clues as to why that might make a difference. In this case, it's, it's appealing to, to social norms, right? 95% of people pay their taxes, so that's a social norm, and it, and it influences behavior. So behavioral economics gives these clues, and techniques like Mindspace and EAST are about trying to think through the implications of, of framing to influence decisions in the in the right way now nudge or behavior change or whatever became i guess popular because it is a cheap way of doing things right so you can add one sentence to a letter and you know it raises how many extra millions of pounds in tax revenue um you know that is clearly a a, a good sell to policymakers. Um, so I think it was relatively successful in that it's a cheap way of potentially uh, making a lot of money or making a difference to, to people's lives. Now, I mean, whenever one thinks about nudge and behavior change, one has to put it in perspective. The effects, you know, are never going to be huge. Um, so it might be you know, a 2% change here, a 3% change there. But given that it's such a simple intervention, you know, a 2%, 3% change um, can, can, can still be well worth, the, uh, well worth the effort. So these behavior change and behavior insights teams, um, I think, are, are going to become ever more relevant in, in, in policy making and basically informing uh, policy. And that's, I think, already happening. But that's that's more of a micro level, so it's about you know trying to change the incentives of someone paying their tax. That's um, a relatively micro level. I think there's still room, you know, as I briefly discussed before, for behavioral economics to break into that macro level, um, and in particular to think about how economies behave, how markets behave, how these aggregate institutions behave, and I think that's still a relatively untapped area uh, where more work needs to be done. But earlier you mentioned a very 
crucial issue, which is uh, you can look at uh, the research in behavioral economics, considering the biases and the rationality as a form to protect or, or enhance the human abilities, or as the opposite, which is uh, a mistake, an error, a disability, we could say, so something to correct. Uh, so starting from this point of view, maybe we have an ontological issue, which is, uh, well, an ethical issue, which is uh, how should we handle uh, behavioral economics research and what are the, 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 the ethical problems related to, to the use of uh, our experiments and our investigation into this field? There are, there are valid ethical things that one needs to consider, for instance, with behavioral interventions, behavior change, nudge, uh, these kinds of things. My personal take is that the ethical concerns are uh, overblown and in particular kind of miss the point. Um, so if we, if we take nudge, for instance, the idea of nudge is to essentially change the framing of the decision. Right? So you don't actually change the options that are available to people or um, any of the incentives. You just simply change how the, the choice is framed. Right Now, of course, the whole nudge um, debate is built around the fact that changing that framing can influence behavior. Right? And so therefore, you get into the ethical issue of, well, is it ethical to try and influence behavior in a particular way? But I think what Nudgeon shows is that it's more unethical to not take into account what effect the framing might have. So we've had years of policymaking where we just um, come up with policies and don't necessarily think about how we're supposed to frame those policies and what the influences of the framing might be. And in a sense, I think that was far more unethical than what we have now, which is where we have a better understanding of how the wording of something may influence decisions, the framing may influence decisions, and we now try and understand those and, and take them into account more than we did before. So, for instance, one of the, the famous nudges is the Save More for Tomorrow program, which tries to get people to save for their pension. So that's you know a particular intervention which changes people's behaviour now, it may change it for the better, it may change it for the worse. Um, that will depend on personal circumstances. But the point is we're now taking more seriously how people will react to the framing of a pension decision rather than the old approach, which just simply said, oh, rational individuals will work out which pension uh, is best for them. Um, so I think it, it opens up the whole debate. And yes, it that means it raises ethical questions, but the ethical problems were there all along. It's just now that we have a slightly better framework for actually thinking through the ethical consequences. So I, you know, I think the the criticisms of behaviour change that it's unethical, in my opinion, slightly miss the point of what particularly nudge uh, and behaviour change is, is actually designed to do. Very interesting, Edward. May I ask you, uh, well, this is the third edition. I wonder if uh, you are working on the next edition or if you have uh, other uh, projects for new books for the future. Um, so this, well, 
the third edition I think was relatively new out. So we're we're not having any plans at the moment for the fourth edition. Currently working on the third edition of the European uh, version of the textbook Microeconomics and Behaviour, which is based on the the book by Bob Frank, uh, which has been around for, for many years. So we're just about finished on the third edition of that one. Um, and that also includes various elements of behavioral economics, um, more at a, at a slightly less advanced level than uh, than in this behavioral economics textbook here. Thank you very much, Edward. This was a very interesting conversation. I hope that uh, those that are not familiar with economics too much uh, still uh, were able to grasp the important contribution of behavioral economics and also our attempt to locate it into the very large family of approaches to economics. And uh, it was a pleasure to talk with you. We spoke with the Professor Edward Cartwright about his book, Behavior Economics, published by Routledge, a very, very important contribution to, to the field in the sense that it was the, the second textbook and it is now one of the most important textbooks on behavioral economics. Thank you very much for speaking with us, Edward. Okay, thank you. New Books in Economics, brought to you by EAEPE, the European Association for Evolutionary Political Economy.